Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Noom Weight uses psychology to help people everywhere learn about their eating habits. Eating is my love language? Yep, sure is. Uh, I say yes to seconds out of guilt. It's hard to say no to Aunt Jenny's banana pudding. Wait, I do what? Oh, fog eating happens to everybody. What the? F We know. It can be a lot to take in. But with the help of Noom Weight, you'll learn the psychology behind your eating habits, how to change them, and get closer to reaching your weight loss goals. Sign up at Noom.com. Good evening and welcome to the last ever edition of the Arsenal Opinion Podcast where we have to talk about whether the manager should go. Because tonight, yesterday, Unai Emery left the building. A little bit sad? You sad? Not at all, not at all. I was uh, so excited to wake up to messages letting me know that he's finally gone. But to be honest... Um, as soon as the game finished yesterday against Eintracht Frankfurt and we'd lost, it was just a matter of time. And it was really a question of whether it was going to happen last night or whether it was going to happen in the morning. And they waited till the morning. But we are happy to report he is finally, finally gone. Wasn't it, uh, wasn't it an odd week? You know, like uh, when he turned up to training wearing like a white outfit, almost like he was about to be sacrificed to the footballing gods just pondering around uh, the training ground, like glazed look on his face. It, I mean, the, the whole week was terrible. I mean, the press, the press rumours about, um, well, not press rumours, he cancelled two training sessions, uh, like horrendous leaks from everywhere about yeah. the complete lack of control. Um, and then, I mean, I don't know about you, but I kind of thought, you know the four games where they were saying, Emery's got four games to turn it around. I, I was worried about them because I couldn't possibly see how a team with the calibre of individuals that we have could not win those games without looking uh, like you were throwing them on purpose. And it was actually quite masterful, just that sort of slight foot off the gas and uh, conceding goals. It's of, a, it, was, it, was, it was masterful. There was one, um, there was one point in the game... Uh, yesterday when uh, Socrates made a mistake and he he managed to sprint back for it but when you looked at the three defenders behind him they were a long long way behind like essentially an old man and it like just goes to show we've been talking about this for weeks at the highest level of the game it doesn't need a big switch off to get punished I mean Frankfurt were terrible they were terrible absolute I mean, terrible I didn't sight. know how it was going to be possible to lose to them um, and we and we managed to do it and the but the crazy thing is the final game was just so Unai Emery. Uh, he lost the lead again. What's that, the fifth in, a, in, a, in six weeks? He played Jacker after all of the nonsense that we had. Jacker made an error, then, uh, then was hugging, kissing and laughing with the Frankfurt players after the game. 
he had to try and save a game with Meza Erzl. I mean, what was it, five weeks ago when he came out and said that Meza Erzl is going to leave the club and we've agreed it at board level. And then the absolute uh, cherry on top, chasing the game when you've got Pepe on the bench and bringing on Torreira. I mean, you just couldn't make it up. You couldn't make it up, could you? No. I mean, what can you say? The guy the guy was consistent, um, but consistently terrible. And I was reading a thing, and it was really interesting. It was talking about how when he first came in, we were so fed up of Wenger's substitutions on the 78th minute that we were excited about these sort of halftime switches and we it sort of tied in with what he'd said about changing things up and being pr- protagonist and flexible. But with the benefit of hindsight, we look back and we realise he just didn't have a fucking clue. He just didn't know no. what he was doing, did he? It wasn't, it wasn't, do you remember when we beat Tottenham and we came back and, um, and, we, and, he, and he changed it at half-time. We came back, we won the game. Torreira scored a great goal. We were on a high. And there were people afterwards saying, suggesting that he'd bought on. He'd started the game with the intention of taking those players off at half time before he started the game. Yeah, you look back a year later and you're like, that's not the way the guy works. But the football fans have a tendency to uh, retrofit genius strategy into strokes of luck. Yeah, and it it really didn't start that badly. I mean, we there was a there was a point last year um where me and you were debating whether the XG numbers were underlying truths and whether he could outperform the XG because he did he, you know it, it you can't be a bad manager if you can take a team on a 22 and a 22 game unbeaten run. I mean, that was pretty epic it was, considering the the caliber of the side. It was, and I think um but I think it's what Arsene Wenger always used to talk about. God bless him. Um, and it's, it's Don't that do it, Matt. Don't called, do it. It's that thing called confidence. And that run bred confidence and meant that every week we were getting stronger and stronger and stronger. Um, but, you know, confidence is hard to get and very easy to lose. And once we lost it, we really stuttered our way through the whole of the rest of the season. I know it, it didn't quite seem that bad, but... I mean, it would like the, it I would say, I would say the the second half of or the start of 2018, it's got to be one of the the biggest bottle jobs in Premier League history. Like how like we basically threw third away. Yeah, I think it was. Um, they said it was. We got we got five points from. We needed five points five, from four f- games. Yeah, um, we. I think the um, probably the defining moment of that part of the season was when he rested players against Crystal Palace because he wanted to win the Europa League, which I, I have to say, part of that was a little bit ego-led. He wanted to be the guy that won four Europa Leagues. I think there was a bit of ego in that play. But again, like a complete misunderstanding of the Premier League um, and the importance of being able to balance your squad. Well, haven't we just seen it now over the last few games when we've been playing pretty shit teams and just that 1% or 2% switching off has meant that we haven't won any of them. And it seems like at the end of the season that was happening, whether it was lack of preparation or lack of focus or whatever. But we never recovered from that end of the season. And there are a lot of parallels with, I think, the Bruce Rioch uh, situation. Right. Uh, When David Dean got rid of him after a year. You know, we finished. What was it? We finished. With fifth up from 13th. We finished fifth. Um you know, we got into the UEFA, I think, on the last day of the season. Um, had Ian was, Wright and Burkham. It's not Ian Wright. But um, the reality was he had split the dressing room. He had, he had isolated Ian Wright. He was such a popular figure in there. He was screaming out of a dressing room window, if I remember correctly, after a game against Blackburn. And we just decided to take action against that level of mediocrity, even though it represented improvement. And I think... It would have been really interesting, and people would have said it would have been really harsh. But when you look back, the right decision would have been to get rid of Unai Emery after we lost against Chelsea in the Europa League because all the warning signs were there. That back end of the season, the capitulation, the performance, um, the sign that things went right, the isolation of key players, Aaron Ramsey, Meza Ozil, the handling of them, the inconsistencies. Um, And then, ironically, it's amazing that it's the... uh, 
it, it was the five captain thing that really did for him in the end. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the way that the way that he's run this season has been um, cataclysmically poor, and and I think it. Um, I think one of the Valencia. Twitter guys basically said, I don't know why nobody saw this coming. When he was at Valencia, the players knew they could roll him. And, I th- and he was basically saying, I think Arsenal players have just worked it out. Um, I'm not a fan of Jacker, You know that. But if you're going to make him captain, make him the captain in August so everybody has time to digest it. Don't throw a vote. Um, don't drop a player if you are going to cave and bring him back. Um, the positional uh, issues that he had with Lucas Torreira, not good. Talking about just basic microaggressions, like uh, taking Pepe off on 60 minutes for an 18-year-old. I know on the face of it, it looks good, but senior players have more clout in the squad. So I just think the whole thing has been a bit of a nightmare. But one thing I, one thing I just can't stop thinking about is you are not a bad manager if you win three Europa Leagues on the bounce. Right, you, you you understand the game, you understand football, and I just can't for the life of me understand how you can have that level of obsession, watch that many games on your own when you're doing your video analysis, and still not understand how to set up a team, how to get the right spacing between midfield and attack to communicate whatever ideas are percolating in your head when you're watching all of this football. Like, what is is he just falling up the stairs in his career? Is he just been supported by you know a very good um, a very a good sporting director at Sevilla. Like, what? How did he get a job at PSG? How did he land that job at Arsenal? It's just staggering. It's bizarre, isn't it? And um, I don't, I, I don't, I honestly don't know. I mean, the only things I can think of is, um, you know, one of the things that happens when you get really close to something is you begin to lose external objectivity, and I wonder whether he became fixated in some sort of echo chamber where he was trying to validate his own managerial model and managerial style because he felt that it was under attack. So he doubled down, doubled, doubled down on it to try and prove a point or to try and prove that he was right. People under pressure do crazy things. Confidence is an amazing thing. And I feel like as the confidence disappeared, um, he began to second guess himself. He began to make more and more erratic decisions um, and I don't think we know what's going on behind the scenes as well because, um, you know, the the Ozil situation was, was, I think, hugely damaging to him, whether it not just on the pitch, but the relationship with the players, I think. Ozil's clearly still got a big pull for the squad, right? Great he's players clearly, have... got a, clearly got a pull, and it just became stupid because the reality is there, are mo- there have been moments this season when we needed Mesut Ozil. Absolutely. And he doesn't need to start, but home games against teams in the in bottom the, half, especially... Or in the Europa League. Or in the Europa League, play him. Yeah. You know, why, would, why would you not play him? He has a lot to offer. In tough away games, make him earn his place. But if you're behind in a tough away game and you've got 20 minutes to go, you know, I would still say he's a decent bet to come on and make a difference and to to not give yourself that chance and to cut your nose off to spite your face is just stupid because if you're away and the fans of Crystal Palace or, or Manchester United see Meza Ozil coming on, they still think, oh, this guy is quality. He, he, he can conjure something up. He does um, though, doesn't whereas he? Whereas I mean, if he's... you bring on Lucas Torreira, you're like, oh, what? Why is he coming on? As, you know? But we speak a lot about um, managerial EQ, but um, the, that he didn't understand that if you played Meza Ozil in tough games, he'd hang himself with the fans anyway. Like he, the, the the best thing he could have done when he was under pressure was was just just play him, let let him show the or, fans. I mean, I think this another sort of pertinent example is Arsene Wenger came in. Um, saw a player in Paul Merson, who, I mean, I love the Merce. I love him as well. Brilliantly talented. Clearly, Wenger didn't fancy him, whether it be for his role in the dressing room or just his way of playing football. I mean, he's a brilliant player, but he's got one certain way of playing. And for whatever reason, um, Merce actually had a really, really good season under Wenger, and then Wenger shipped him out. But you'd never have known they would have had an issue until the end of the season when... Uh, when he went to Borough. 
Uh, and I think that's what you've got to do is whether you like a player or you don't like a player, if he's in your squad, you've got to try and get the most out of him because that's just the way it goes. I mean, and, and you know, if Meza Ozil had been motivated and had scored five goals and three assists by this point in the season, which is way within his abilities, that could be an extra nine points and Emery could still be in the job. So... It's also um, it also shows the lack of self confidence that Emery has as a person. Like I don't ever feel that he truly believed that he should have been in the Arsenal job. So a lot of decisions that he made almost felt like um, reactions to how he was treated at PSG. I mean, when he was at Sevilla, those players that Monchi was bringing in depended on Emery to get their next big money move. But when you're at Arsenal. No one depends on you. They're at Arsenal. And like, I think that Emery, um, he treated PSG with too much respect and, ne- and Neymar with too much respect. Um, and then I think he saw Arsenal as more of a severe than he did uh, PSG. And when you treat Arsenal players um, without due respect, um, you're going to be judged. And I think that, that that was kind of the thing that he missed. It's like... Uh, every individual problem that you have across the season is an opportunity to show that you're a great people person and the manager. But if you start fucking those up, like um, like dropping Ramsey and putting his contract, then bringing him back, dropping Ozil, then bringing him back, uh, uh, like making a mess of the captaincy, these things, these little things all add up. And then, I mean, really, the I, I still maintain... Uh, there's still a counter-argument to this, but I still maintain the biggest problem they had is he just didn't learn the language. He just couldn't, he just didn't move the language forward. And I know people, I saw people online today saying that Ranieri hadn't mastered the language. Well, Ranieri did four seasons at Chelsea before he went to Leicester. You know, his English isn't great, but it's not terrible. Conte, I'm looking back at press conferences, he's slow, but I think he's more like methodical about what he says. Like you still understood where he was going. Unai Emery, like you just had no clue where he was going. And the, when the English gets so bad that some idiot Sky Sports News presenter can rip you, um, I, I think that I think that you've done yourself in, haven't you? Well, I think it's I think there's definitely a point around the language, um, but I think it's what you refer to a bit as just having a bit of sauce and. You don't have to be fluent in the language to have charisma. And obviously it's difficult to demonstrate that you're charismatic without speaking in that language. But I think what he really didn't have is presence. That's what I mean. That's what I love. That's what I mean by source. Yeah. Like would any Sky Sports News reporter even dare take the mick out of the way Mourinho said a word? I mean, you wouldn't, because you'd get you know you'd get a lashing, or you'd get yeah. or you'd get knocked out. Yeah. Um. The the I I think the stories coming out of the club where the young players are mocking him to his face. It's it's disgraceful, but that is that is nature of sport, right? Yeah. Like you cannot it's expect survival of the fittest. It's Darwinism. It's absolutely know. Darwinism. Um. So and, and you've just and, and we were talking about it earlier and talking about the Mourinho effect and you saw. You saw the way that he behaved in his first game. And if you know anything about anything, he's so methodical about the way he does things. Like, everything is thought through. Very strategic, and, isn't it? Yeah. But let's be honest. You don't need to be brain of Britain to think of those things. It's pretty obvious stuff, a lot of it. And he does it. He executes it really well. I know you loved what he did after the game, right? Exactly, yeah. He went over. He did his usual. But you could but Then see he walked home. Through Chelsea in his Spurs tracksuit, so basic. But you know, if you're a fan of the club, you're like, I, I, I love that. I love that. Um, so we were talking a little bit earlier on today about Freddie Lundberg, and um, the conversation ended up getting quite excitable um, towards the end. So um, I don't want to talk too much on Freddie today, but like, congratulations to him. Um, I think he's in the press saying that, you know, he got back into football because there's only so much golf you can play. Clearly a very driven guy, absolutely adored by the fan base. Um, It seems to me, looking at the tweets, that most of the fan base just wanted a really handsome man in the dugout. Well, now they've got him. Um, What do you you think, uh, like, there there, there are going to be three or four things that he has to do to get the fans on side, right? 
I think he's an intelligent guy. Anybody that ha that learns another language to communicate with their manager is obviously quite sharp. Um, what is his walking through uh, Chelsea um, wearing a tracksuit? I think the first thing that Freddie can do is, if you had to pick one thing, I'd say, well, actually, I think there's two things. I think the first thing is to move to move the team to an attacking mindset again. The team is clearly, the talent is loaded. In, it's, we're front heavy. Obama Yang, Lacazette, Pepe, Ozil. You know, we're built to score goals and we're built to concede them. So I think the fans want, will want us to lean into that and demonstrate that we've got a bit of, uh, a, a bit of sauce about the team. And the second thing I think we can do, which is just so fucking easy, is press. So someone said, what's Freddie Lundberg's managerial style? And one of the people says he's into an aggressive press. I mean, we hear that about all the managers. And so they Everybody starts, us. yeah. Even but, Arsene Wenger was like, we're going to press this season. Uh, but when you watch, I was watching Martinelli against Frankfurt. And he actually does press from the front. And my God, it makes such a difference as a fan to see someone hounding people, chasing them back. Because we are so used to being so reactive, so slow, so sluggish. So I think that if Freddie Lundberg can, um, can get the team pressing and can get the team attacking, uh, then, then we could be into it. Into it could be exciting. Yeah, I think, the, I think that that's a very good shout. I think, uh, I think Martinelli has the potential to be um, Freddie's Nicholas Anelka. Like, really. I mean, I, I genuinely think he's one of the most exciting players I've seen in absolute years. He's like a, a real hustle and bustle centre forward. Will put his head anywhere. Lightning pace. He's a little bit like um, a Suarez. He's very Suarez. Yeah, he's very Suarez. He's, he's also got a little bit of um, little Robin bit of Van Persie about yeah, him. Yeah. A little bit of Robin Van Persie about him. I think um, I think Freddie, uh, I think Freddie's got a few things um, that, that I'm going to be looking out for. Firstly, like um, more organisation. Um, I think the rumours that he's going to bring Gilberto into into the club are fantastic. Like everybody loves Gilberto. Um, like probably one of the first defensive midfielders in the Premier League that really understood how to sort of mark shadows. Well, we didn't. We didn't even. Do you remember? We We're didn't so even, stupid. We didn't even realise. We didn't even realise how good he was, and then he got injured. Yeah, we didn't. We didn't realise. Yeah, some somebody that understands like off the ball positioning. I think could be great. Also, somebody with like a World Cup winning gravitas about them. I think that that's um, I think that's a really sound move. Apparently, he still lives in London, so that's good news. Then I think he's got. Um, th then it's it's going to be very very interesting to see. Like, um, you know, I, I've heard behind the scenes that Freddie was exacerbated by Emery. Was he not was still the number two though? Wasn't he it? was still the number two. Um, but I I don't think he. I think he was a ceremonial. Number two, a bit like Steve Bold. I mean, shockingly, Unai Emery had nine people that he was allowed to bring into the club. So you can imagine how someone new on the scene, how little impact he's going to have. Well, I'm hoping that that's the case anyway. But it's going to be very interesting to see what Freddie's vision of a starting eleven like. It, there's a there's a photo of him and Meza Özil today on or Meza's Twitter feed, like. What's he going to do with Meza Özil if he agrees in the in an aggressive press? How does Özil fit into that? But like that's that's an immediate win. If Mourinho came to Arsenal, his thing to Arsenal fans would be, "I'm going to get the best out of Meza Özil." So what's he going to do there? Then the real challenge is uh, a lot of people say that Granite Jacker is highly rated behind the scenes. Uh, the fan win would be drop him, don't play him. The uh, maybe the purest view would be get him playing well, protect him, put him in a position that he can thrive in. What do you think he's going to do with Granite Jacker? It's an interesting one. It really is. I mean, from by all accounts, it seems like Granite Jacker is popular within the dressing room at Arsenal. Popular with the Frankfurt players as well, by the looks of things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Disgraceful. I think the first thing you've got to do if you're Freddie Lundberg is you've got to go, my midfield hasn't been balanced all season. So how can I get it balanced? I mean, there's been some, someone was talking about how did he set up his under 23 teams? And they said, oh, he, he would play one striker rather than, so it'd be interesting to see whether he goes for, 
if he if he followed that through, whether he would just pick one of Aubameyang and Lacazette if he wanted a really balanced team. But he's also got you know the issues of them having not signed contracts and all of that. So look, it's going to be really really tricky. I think the first thing he's going to do is he's going to go. Let's get Lucas. Uh, I'm hoping. I'm just basing it on what I do. Um, is get Lucas Torreira playing in his natural position as a number four, as a number four, as a defensive midfielder, sitting yeah, just in front of the back four. Been that notion of a number ten, and 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 get him and get him there and get him hustling and get him just biting into tackles because we did that for a portion of last season and guess what? Unsurprisingly, it works. Um, I'd imagine he'll put. Uh, Gwendozi next to him. Although Gwendozi looks like he looks like a bit of a headless chicken at the moment. So Freddie Again, might comes from like if you're playing in a team with no structure, what are you supposed exactly. to do? You just chase so, the ball, right? But it'll be interesting to see to see what he does with that. I mean, I presume he's going to go with a back four. Um, I just can't see Freddie playing a back five. No. So and the back four, I mean, it almost picks it sort itself. It picks now. itself. Tierney, Bellerin, Louise, and Socrates, isn't it? Really? Yeah. I mean, Chambers has been. Knocking on the door, but let's face it. I mean, he's, he's, he's not a door you really want. You don't really want him to knock at your door. No, uh, um, he's average. Let's be honest. And then it's really going to be a case of how he can get anything out of the front players because Pepe has been anonymous. He had a terrible season so far. Um, Lacazette has been fitful. Aubameyang's now gone off the boil. I think uh, looks a bit lost. Özil hasn't played, and that's a huge amount of talent that hasn't yet hit any form. So. It's all going to be how can he uh, engineer the team to get some get some results. But we're also coming into a tough run of games, so yeah, it's going to be it's going to be really interesting. And then and then he's really been thrown into the fr- the frying pan. Here, he has. He? And then the other thing about it all, obviously, is that he knows the under twenty three play as well. You know, we've been talking about it, and one of the one of the great things that happened to Chelsea is that their their, their strategy was picked for them. Um, by having to sell, well, by 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 selling Hazard and not being able to go into the transfer window. So, if Freddie Lundberg had been brought in at the beginning of the season and given the brief of bringing the academy players through, it'd be different. But we've also spent a lot of money on players like Pepe. We've got the issue of our two strikers having not signed contracts, and whether you think they should sign or not sign. Well, they have to sign, even if we sell them in the summer. Because otherwise, we have to. Well, they have to go. Well, if we don't make the Champions League, the only way to raise funds in the summer will be by selling. Yeah. Obama Ying and Lacazette. Yeah, and, and and as much as I love Lacazette, I mean, he's 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 got limitations. Well, you sort of go if Freddie has if Freddie was looking long term, and this is the danger of having this this uh, caretaker role is it's does he look long term or short term? And I think he probably has to look short term, but. Long term, he'd probably say, well, maybe I have to sell Aubameyang and Lacazette and completely re-engineer the whole team. We'll just raise 100 million, right? Yeah. Well, also, um, the decision won't really be down to him, will it? I mean, um, in this whole melee that we've been experiencing over the last few months, it doesn't appear that Edu has been particularly present. Um, So one could only hope that he's trying to do the chief scout role I mean, I, I, from from what I hear, he's he's very close with Per Mertesack, or maybe he's spending a bit bit more time working on um, the youth players. But yeah, I mean, like Fr- Freddie Freddie Lundberg um, till the end of the season has a bit of an appeal to it. But my my concern is um, he's not top of the game when it comes to to coaching. He's not, you know, no, like I he's only he's, experienced. He, I, think he's, I mean, I was trying to think about it. Um, earlier, and I was going. I don't think Freddie Lundberg has a management or coaching philosophy. I think he knows how he likes the game to be played. He's, he's almost got a philosophy for today, but he doesn't have a philosophy for tomorrow. I think that that's um, and I mean, in fairness, I mean Carlo Ancelotti wasn't a masterful no. tactician of the game. He was just very good with um, elite players at, at big clubs, um, and he, you know, made everybody feel good. And you know, like m- maybe five, six years ago, that was the thing that could get you through. But I think, as we're now seeing now, like even you know teams like Sheffield United, who have got like very dynamic, um, strategic coaches, uh, the 
that are, are taking things to another level. I'm not quite sure Freddie's there and his record, of what, what he's, he's learned from Arsene Wenger, Unai Emery, and he's worked under Jonker at Wolfsburg and was sacked he after was six months. He was the Swedish manager. I mean, under... The Dutch... Dutch guy Jonker. He yeah. went to Wolfsburg with him. Right. They saved Wolfsburg from relegation and then they were fired in like October of that year because uh, leadership had determined that the club had stagnated. So um, I'm game for the ride short term. I just I just feel that, that, that we very closely track to Man United and this is either we've skipped straight to the Ole Gunnar Solskjaer moment or worst could come and then we could make our Louis van Gaal signing. Uh, but anyway, it's going to be fun. It's going to be attacking football. And it's certainly going to be more exciting than what we've seen. Um, in the next part, let's discuss managerial candidates. And welcome back to part two, um, where we're going to start discussing what comes next. Um, but before we get into that, um, we really do have to have a conversation um, about accountability around the uh, Raul um, and Emery debacle. Uh, So just to recap everybody, um, as we mentioned on the last show, uh, Unai Emery came into the equation very late on. It was nailed on that Arteta was going to get the job. Uh, And in eight days, um, Raul jammed Emery through the system. And despite not being able to speak English, despite not having any evidence that he could build defences, and actually despite having a really bad record with big players in and around uh in and around Europe. What what a, like where's the accountability here? Like he made a horrendous decision um based on a, a contacts approach in the uh the year preceding the Emery hire. Uh we lost Sven Mislintat. Um Sven Mislintat knew what contacts uh scouting was all about and he moved on, didn't want to be a part of it. And now we're a year on. He's had, like, as you said a few weeks ago, actually a pretty bad summer on reflection. I mean, I know that we're all excited in the moment, but, like, looking back, it's not been good. We're not in a better place. Um, Is he under pressure? I think he is under pressure. And I just remember that moment when someone was like, Don Raul, and we were all like, you know, this is amazing because we've never behaved like that. Um, but we've talked about it a lot over the last couple of years, and I think the biggest issue is nowhere is defined what the vision of Arsenal Football Club is. And because of that vision, it's impossible to understand whether we are executing well against it. I mean, clearly we're not executing well against it because we just fired our manager. But when we went and made that hire of Emery, what did we think was the strategy of the football club? Because even then, you look at the shortlist and it was scattered all over the place. And you think that has to be the job of the CEO. They have to say, this is how we think. This is what we think the vision of the football club is. And I think we're beginning to see that Raul's vision is this sort of super agent, uh, context-based approach. But he's never come out. No one's ever come out and said, that's our approach or this is our approach. And... That's sort of weird, isn't it? If you think about it from a CEO, you'd sort, of, you'd sort of want them to tell you how they thought the club could be successful. And we actually have no idea from anyone how it can be. Um, and obviously, just things have just fallen off a cliff. And, um, and none of these people have... We don't, we don't owe them anything as Arsenal fans. We have no debt of gratitude for anything they've ever done in the past. Arsene Wenger earned our trust. People like David Dean, we knew were great fans. Players who come in have played and loved the club. You know, and I, and I sort of hark back to like the, the Lampard example at Chelsea because I think he's doing a great job. And you, 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 you earn yourself. You know, you can lose a few games and you're going to be okay. But this board and this management team, we don't owe them shit. They're just uh, employees now, right? They're just employees. Maybe not Eddie. But even Eddie, I mean, to a certain degree, I mean, he's been very quiet since he joined. He's, yeah, I mean, he, uh, <laughs> sort of a funny one. If you were following that Invincible team and you saw the amount of charisma that existed on the pitch at that time, I mean, it was 1 to 11, or 1 to 15, because Edu couldn't get a place in the first team. But you wouldn't have gone that Edu was the guy who was going to come in and, you know, be the spirit of, be the spirit of, the, of the club. 
Um, and we haven't fallen in love with any of his behaviours. And look, I was trying to look at parallels and going, is there a sporting director who we do know about or we do see a way of thinking? But I think that was what was interesting about Sven Mislintat is we liked him. We gravitated towards him because he had a philosophy, uh, because we could see the types of player immediately that he was picking up and bringing in. You know, the Guendouzi, the Terreras, they excited us because we could see potential in them. And I think that's that sort of vision is is sort of what we're missing at the moment. Yeah, and I think the you know a lot of people critique some of the players that um, Sven brought in. Lucas Torreira hasn't been um, great. We had Lick Steiner, uh, um, Mkhitaryan, but ultimately you can forgive a lot of those signings because you could see that there was a thought behind it. You could see that there was some rigor behind the decision. When you look at what we did this summer. I mean, it, it's almost unforgivable that we spent 20 million plus all of the add-ons, which I'm assured um, probably takes things close to 40 million on David Luiz. That didn't feel like a progressive signing. That felt like That's Chelsea like circa 2008. Yeah. You know? It felt like a, it felt like a bung. <laughs> yeah, it didn't feel, I yeah. Mean, it feel, felt like a, how, do we, how do we make this problem? And we don't even know whose problem it was, whether it was the players, whether it was the clubs, whether it was an agent wanting 10% of a final transfer. But somewhere along the line, someone had a problem that was fixed by Arsenal buying David Luiz. And it wasn't, you know, it could be seen as fixing a problem that we had. But when you look back on it, it was a, it was a poor, poor signing. And especially and when you look at um, uh, Sionchu, Sionchu uh, uh, Leicester, like we were interested in him, I believe, the year before. Like that's the sort of centre-back signing well, I that think it, you it, want to be bringing to the club, yeah, right? It, Not a it has reminds been. me of what Wenger used to say at the beginning of his tenure when he was amazing. And he used to say it's as much about the player's mentality as it is their ability on the pitch. And I don't believe that you could look at David Luiz and say that mentality was what this current Arsenal team needed. I think that if we were a Chelsea in their pomp with a hard as steel core, then you can bring someone in and they can't damage what you have. But I think, you know, we didn't, we needed, we, we needed someone young, hungry, and we didn't need someone who has won it all, done it all, coming in for one final paycheck. And Especially not in our problem area. And I think more alarmingly, um, you know, Raul's making a lot of bad decisions. That it's very difficult to fathom how we, you know, arrived at those. And that's the problem with contacts football, right? It's opaque. It's it's uh, it's a recommendation, which is never a good, never a good foundation for um, for for making smart decisions. But he hasn't backfilled Sven. In fact, he's sacked uh, Edu, sacked uh, Steve Morrow. Uh, and you know eight other eight or nine other support staff along the way. The fact that we're, we're almost we're almost a year out from when Sven Mistentat left. You know, the it, it, it realistically probably takes a, a top scout two to three years to really bed into a club to really you know set up the network. I mean, like building a global network of scouts is not an easy thing, and we're still not there. We've got the January transfer window coming up. Who knows what's going to happen? We've just had a terrible summer. Um, like this, uh, this vision of like Barcelona light. Well, it's not even Barcelona light because I'm sure that I'm, you know they're a they're a very data driven club. He wouldn't get away with this sort of behaviour at Barcelona. I so mean, why are we allowing it at Arsenal? Well, I mean it's interesting actually. Um, I've read a great post that someone did, wrote back in February, I think, and I I can't remember who it was, um, but I'll have to find it. All about Raúl and uh, his performance at Barcelona. And when uh, you are my Arsenal, I think it is. Right, it, it, yeah. was a, it was a good post because it went year by year in Barcelona and it didn't make for good reading. I mean, there are a lot of calamitous errors and it managed to coincide with a period when they were extremely successful. But their success really was based on people that and, and structures that had been in place well before him. And he, he, Definitely took a lot. He definitely had a lot of pressure at Barcelona for some of his performances. He also was the bag man for the Neymar deal. Yeah, right. Uh, and you know, just just Google that if you're not aware of where 
what happened um what happened there but so now uh now moving on to to an extremely important issue the the next hire um you can afford one bad signing as a manager when you're in Arsenal's position you can't afford two um I was horrified to read that Arsenal were linked to Nuno um I wrote I mean there are obviously concerns about Raul I don't think he's got a lot of friends at Arsenal um but to make a a recommendation for Arsenal manager for a, a manager as steeped in dodginess as Nuno is quite something. And just for just for the record, if you didn't read the blog post, please go and check it out. But uh, Nuno was uh, Mendes, Jorge Mendes, first ever um, client way back when, uh, ex nightclub owner Jorge Mendes. So you know exactly where he's come from. Uh, and there's uh, basically a story about how um, Peter Lim got brought on board at Valencia. And uh, part of the deal was uh, that Nuno would be put in charge. Um, and that's because Mendes brought Peter Lim to the table. So uh, Pizzi, the manager at the time, was fired. Nuno was brought in. And as you can imagine, 200 million euros worth of players later, Mendes fingerprints all over it. Um, things got so bad that basically all of the support staff, like three of the uh, support staff, one of which I think included Roberto Ayala, um, they they were all moved on because when um, when Nuno comes to your club, Mendes becomes your chief scout, your analyst, and your club strategist. Um, he actually got uh, Valencia into the Champions League in his first season, um, but then as soon as things started turning south, he was hounded out, not because of his performance as a manager, but because the fans hated him. They hated the structure. They hated that they basically become a fee magnet for one of the most powerful agents in the world. So you're looking at Nuno and just saying, well, he did, he did a good job one season at Wolves. Um, he, he beat more top six sides than Wenger and Emery did in the last five years combined. Um, but scratch beneath the surface. Look at what Wolves do. They are, again, another Asian business group, Fosun, I believe, came into the fold. Uh, Mendes um, in charge there, and he's just using Wolves to circulate players in and out of the club, and no doubt taking a lot of fees along the way. Like, why would Raul invite such a person into the club? How dangerous is that? Well, I think you summed it up, and I thought the post was brilliant because um, I think for a lot of us fans, we just think about who we hear about is having a good run and think about bringing them into the club without thinking about what the bigger ramifications of it are. So I thought it was a, it was a, it was a brilliant piece. And look, maybe I'm just completely mistaken about the status of Arsenal, but I really feel like going for the Wolves manager at the, at the, at the, at the stage we're in is fundamentally the wrong thing to do because it feels like, another middle-of-the-road signing in terms of... Even without the super agent stuff. Even without the super agent Why would you be going for a, you know underdog counter-attacking manager that failed at Porto? And I feel like you have to go... You have to pick, you have to pick a lane and go for it. You have to go for that deep experience um, or you have to go for that bright young thing. Um, the unknown. Yeah, and I think it's... And, and I think that's why there's been so much chatter online about is it Allegri or is it Arteta? Because I think both of the, both of those are the forerunners in their respective, uh, in their respective camps, you know? Um, and just, just before we move off the Nuno thing, I, I find it staggering that you listen around on some of the other podcasts or read influential figures talking up the idea of Nuno. And actually the, the, one of the, the most depressing things um, to read around Arsenal fans is this notion of values. Now, I know Arsene Wenger used values to disguise poor performance over the last 10 years, but anybody that thinks Arsenal don't have values running for the club, doesn't understand the club, hasn't spent time with people that work at the club. Arsenal are a special club, and the erosion of values that would come with a super agent is not something that you want. You know, like part of a football club is, you know, the, the inherent belief you have in what it stands for. 
the, like bringing in Mendes and Kia to start making key decisions for us is like a, a path to nowhere. Um, super agents running clubs almost never works. Just look at how, how, how much in fees do you think um, Raiola has made off Man United over the last five years? Yeah, staggering. Probably more than Arsenal's transfer budget. Where has it left them? They are broken. Well, I think the whole values thing is is a really interesting point, and I think. Um... It's something that has always been uh, part of Arsenal's history. And, you know, the Bank of England Club, the 30s, the Marble Halls, uh, you know, the Hill Woods, whatever you think of them. Uh, And then we had Arsene Wenger, who was such a, you know, he he was so into it and and created... Values almost to a detriment. Values to his detriment, but we, we loved him for it and other fans sort of mocked us uh, for it at the same time. But, I I mean, I don't think we can talk about ourselves as a values-based organisation anymore because how long can you cling on to something? It's now a decade since we've really shown those values. I mean, we had one man who was in Arsene Wenger who clung on to them, but, you know, he became incre- increasingly... You know, he was doing some crazy things. <laughs> So it became harder for him to talk about values as some of his behaviour ceased to sort of uh, sort of follow them. And it's and it's not it, it's not do what I say; it's do what I do. And right now, we are a club just like any other. We have surrendered our values. But this is to the point. It's it's, it's like okay, um, we should never have completely avoided super agents. That was stupid, right? You know, like we should have paid Mbappe's family eight million pounds to secure signing of the of the decade, and, and we didn't. Like, but there are um, there's a threshold, right? Okay, and like Mbappe, like you know, give up a little bit of your values to sign a player like that. But the idea of like literally handing the keys to Mendes uh, in the way that Wolves had, like, how can you get behind that? Well, I'll tell you what's interesting, and I've said I've been talking about it a few times, and maybe just because I'm quite impressed by what they're doing, but Chelsea, for me, are a club who most people have said don't have many values, especially during the, the Abramovich era. But I think it's interesting to see the response of the whole footballing community, the response of other fans, the way I see what they're doing at the moment, with the way they've brought through all these young players, the way Frank Lampard's taking control. And so it's interesting. Are you saying that they're almost likable? I'm saying they're almost likable, yeah. And I think, but it's interesting that you can, because that's values, isn't it? In a way, because we're saying their values are about, suddenly they have the same, they have values about bringing you through and they have values about giving you a You know, it's having a vision and then saying how you're going to enact that vision. We want to play exciting football and we want to do it with young players. So we're going to sign Pulisic. And and, and I think we we keep coming back to the same point, which is what is the vision of Arsenal Football Club? Because we don't know and we don't believe it when KSE say prepare to get excited or do this or do that. We have no faith and we have no understanding of what the vision is. Because I think that Arsenal fans could actually be surprisingly patient. What was the vision? Was it um, Vinay and Raul? The vision was make proud. Proud? Make Arsenal fans proud? Wasn't that the thing? I mean, it was stupid. What the fuck is that? It was stupid. And and if if they came out and said, we're going to give... Anything could happen. We don't have any... We don't have a short-term objective to get into the Champions League. The objective is to back the new young manager, whether it be Lundberg or Arteta, with a five-year plan... The focus is going to be two things, bringing players through the academy and buying the best young players from around Europe. But we don't plan to spend more than X. Uh, we'd, Dortmund plus. We'd, we'd be like, OK, we get it. And they go, you know, it might be a couple of years of mid-table. It might be. We hope it's not. But it at least be. if you're honest, you know, you know it's, uh, it's, it's like the, if you're going to be late, tell me. Don't keep on telling me you're going to be there in five minutes for the next 30 minutes because I'm going to be far more ma- angry at you than I would be if you just said I'll be there at uh, 8.30. And, and, you know, under promise, over deliver. Exactly. Okay. Um, in part three, we're going to discuss Arteta. Tessa. 
So as we head into part three of this, Matt is going to talk very directly into the microphone because he is uh, ill-disciplined when it comes to that. He's, uh, he's the Meza Ozil of microphones. So um, I think the, the, the most shocking thing, and I have been saying it for weeks um, on the blog, is that there isn't a plan. There hasn't been a plan. And we spoke about um, you know what the vision for Arsenal is through this whole podcast. The only hope is that Edu has been working on a really impressive deck for Raul about what the vision of the club is um, because there is no shortlist. So if you read Guillaume Balaguer saying that Patrick Vieira is high up the shortlist, he's com- it's completely wrong. Nobody's high up the shortlist because they're gathering names. It's not a shortlist, it's a long list. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's a long list at the moment. And um, I, Matt and I were talking before the podcast it's kind of a shocking list. And I think uh, like Rory Smith of the New York Times uh, made the point. Um, the original list that Arsenal had in uh, 2018 was all over the place. And once again, it's all over the place. We've got Allegri. We've got Pochettino. We've got uh, Arteta, Nuno. Like there's, there's no common thread that's running through this. It just seems to be like a, a almost championship manager um, wish list of names. Um, so in, in this in this final part, I think we're just going to talk about the ones that uh, are interesting. Allegri is interesting just because I think the story that released today was that uh, he basically told Arsenal to pitch him in an interview, which is a baller move, in my opinion. Um, what, do you think, what do you think of that? <laughs> I mean, I love it. It's, I absolutely love it because that is exactly what Arsenal were missing. Can you imagine... Some Sky Sports reporter trying to mock him, and it's just like, who the fuck are you? Yeah, um, but it isn't. It is kind of standard in business that when you approach a manager about a job, uh, or no, when somebody approaches, sorry, if you get approached uh, about a job and uh, then you weren't expecting it and you were kind of happy where you are, that you say, sell me on it, right? Yeah. Well, why? Why should I come and and work for you? I, I think that that's a completely fair question. Um, but anyway, I, I, we, we read that he's going to continue on his sabbatical. Um, I'm not sure that he's quite for Arsenal. I feel like he's almost too big for the job. It feels like that, yeah. And, and you feel like philosophically, you know, classic Arsenal philosophy might not be aligned. He's definitely much more of an organiser and a more defensively minded coach, I'd also say. A, Just a, a pragmatist. A pragmatist, yeah. Um, I mean, we all loved him when he dumped Spurs out a couple of years ago. Um, yeah, it but, didn't look like it was going well either, did it? He really turned that around. That was a great result. Yeah, so, um, look, he's an interesting candidate and he's the closest thing, I think, that we have to a dead cert. I think if you bring in Allegri, it's almost certain that we will significantly improve. Whether it will be a long term or a short term or a match made in heaven, who knows? But I think he's just got too much about him to not make a massive difference to the kind of team we had. <laughs> there were rumours that, and again, we're just going off what we're hearing everywhere, but there were rumours that he said he was worried about how much Arsenal would be available to spend because the first two signings that he'd need to make were two centre-backs, <laughs> which, again, I love that. Because can you imagine a new manager coming into... He wasn't wrong. He wasn't wrong. It's exactly right. Didn't everybody say this summer, did we really need to spend £80 million on a winger? Was that the most important signing or did we need to spend that sort of money on a, on a defender or two, really, for that sort of price? So, um, so it's interesting. I think he's an interesting candidate. I'd be amazed if we, if we got him. Um, he, doesn't, he just doesn't feel like an Arsenal manager. You know, um, the, you know the real problem with him is that you, you have to you have to map a manager to where you are as a club and where the manager is in his career. Like he's been badly burned by Juventus, kicking him out for Sarri, which is very odd. He wasn't really kicked out though, was he? He, he was kind of he was kind of pushed out. I don't think he was expecting to go, but, but um, he his next club needs to be able to offer him a route to the Champions League final. And let's be completely blunt here there's not a chance that we're making the Champions League final in the next three years. And I think that he'll get... To, if, if, he, if we don't make the Champions League this year, he will be complaining that there's no money because he's not at the stage of the career where he needs to prove himself by building out something special. Yeah. No, he feels very much like a Chelsea manager, I think. 
so next controversial uh, managerial um, appointment because I am completely going to ignore Nuno. That's a no go for that's a no go for me. It should be a no go for everybody else. Um, Pochettino, um, Ornstein says that he's going to be on the shortlist. He's probably the most suited available manager in the world right now. Um, my my opinion is that he's he almost he has too 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 higher value of himself to do something like that. But you don't know how Levy treated him after the the breakup. Um, Spurs replaced him with somebody pretty horrendous who said that he'd never managed Spurs. What do you think the chances of seeing Pochettino uh, turn up in the Arsenal dugout? Again, I think it's uh, extremely unlikely that it will happen. There's a couple of things that make me interested in him because Levy is not... Levy's an asshole, and I don't think he's a particularly... He's a good chairman in the perspective of being able to negotiate good deals for outgoing players... And he's a good businessman. But if I was a manager, Daniel Levy is not someone who I particularly want to work for. I don't think that he, it was ever going to, he was ever going to make the investment that Pochettino wanted. I don't think that he's a trustworthy individual. And the reason I think that's all interesting is because it means that he may not be put off by the people we've got in charge, well, which, the, which some people would be because I wouldn't have any faith in, in our current uh, executive team in charge well, he he underfunded uh the, the you know a golden generation of players didn't he really he did I mean, almost almost in the same way that Arsene Wenger was underfunded um yep. after the stadium move the the only reason i could see that it might be exciting for him like he's got his kids in london um he, he won't have to he won't have to move but like really I think that he stayed on in the final season just to be the first manager in yeah. the new stadium. Yeah, he was done. So he's obviously concerned with history and legacy. Like, is he, I, I just feel it's like slightly un, unrealistic. Though he is oddly the only candidate that would completely galvanise Arsenal fans, right? Maybe. I mean, I well, he's he's the, he's the most obvious choice that everyone says yes. That would there's work. two things that that make me question uh, the decision, and I think it's. Um, if he took the job, then I think that part of his motivation would be to get one over on Spurs. And I personally think that if that is your motivation, you will never be successful. Because I think it's coming, it's at the very top level, you need, your, you need to be driven by a desire to win for Arsenal than a desire to win to prove something to someone else. And I think that's what you see from the Mourinho style approach, which is often winning to prove something to someone else. I just don't believe that at the very top level that that's where you want your energy to be coming from. Um, and I think there's just too much baggage. I think he's, I think he's, I think he's got Spurs blood in him. I know that sounds uh, like, a, like a Spurs fan, but I just think he's, 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 he's too close to those guys. Uh, no matter what happened, it feels a bit like George Graham going to Spurs where he could come. He's a good manager. He might win us the League Cup, but... You know, I think the guys, the guys, Tottenham. Yes. Um, okay. So we will move on uh, to the, the next candidate, my favourite. Um, I think we are in a great position to hire an unknown. Um, I think the Mikel Arteta has pr- more than proven himself at Manchester City. He's an incredible coach. Um, Pep was speaking about you know what a great human he is. Um, he's obsessed about football. When Pep Guardiola says that you have an unbelievable work ethic, I mean, we've all seen the Amazon documentary. That guy um, had to quit Barcelona because his wife thought he'd die on the job. That's how obsessive he is. So the idea of taking some of that future football vision, wrapping it in somebody that at least has a little bit of Arsenal blood, that knows the complete shit show going on at Arsenal probably still speaks to Per Mertesacker and people in the backroom team. The idea that we could bring in the next Pep Guardiola, who's been hyped by managers like Wenger, Pochettino, um, players like Raheem Sterling, who said that he was you know, responsible for you know, him blowing up into the Romario. How can we not give that a go after witnessing firsthand what taking a safe approach has given us? 
Yeah, I mean, you've made a very compelling case. I'm, I'm, I think it's my number one choice for next incoming. I think he's a lot of people's number one choice for a number of reasons. Um, my, I don't really have any sort of real negative. My only negative is to say football management comes in cycles and you have different styles. You had the Wenger years, you had the Mourinho years, you had the Guardiola years, you've got the Klopp years. And my only question that I'd love to be, have answered is whether is Arteta a disciple of Pep Guardiola or does he have his own footballing philosophy that is an evolution on what we've already seen? Because there will come a time in the next year, two years, three years where Pep Ball is no longer effective at the highest level because everything in management everything we know, with the exception of probably Alex Ferguson, he managed to consistently evolve. Everything has a cycle. And do we think that he is a visionary in the sense of being able to create his own footballing philosophy? And maybe we don't need that, and maybe we're being too ambitious, but that, that's my only question. Yeah, and I think it's a, I think it's a, a, a good question to answer, uh, to answer because... You know what? What is Klopp? What is Klopp football? That's the best football in the world at the moment. It's, it's the Gagan press. It's, yeah, it's, it's the, the Gagan press. Football. It's, it's a... power, pace, and um, Tiago Mota. I, I know that you know he's you know he plays nine midfielders. Yeah, he like he believes that the future is like a two-seven-two, and that's where the game is going. He thinks that it's based on intense pressing, like brilliant off the ball movement, um, and possession football. The way that you take Klopp football out is uh, flooding the midfield and having amazing pressing football. And I don't think that anybody is going to have a better education in off-the-ball movement, pressing, um, possession-based football than Arteta. Like, he is where the future of football is going. I think the concern is um, translating but like translating training methods into onto the pitch. Like, that's that, that's the thing that he doesn't really have. You know, if he's running training sessions, if he's doing one-to-ones with players and developing them, if Pep Guardiola is saying he's something special, I mean, people forget, he's 38 years old. Like, when you compare him to Quiroz, McLaren or Phelan, like, they were long-term assistant managers. This guy isn't even 40 yet. I did that very boring thing of looking at Arteta's Wikipedia. And essentially, him coming to Arsenal would be like Pep starting his job at Barcelona first team. They'd be the same age. Really? So um, there are parallels and it feels... And, and Pep had obviously been in charge of Barcelona B, uh, Arteta in second in command at Man City, first first team. But yeah, it's impossible not to get excited. And he probably is one of the... And I think I think Tim Stillman wrote a really good p- post on it. And it's he gives us the hope, but he also gives us the security of we know who he is. Um, he He knows who we are. Um, it gives us a chance to punch above our weight, I think, in terms of a young, aspiring coach. So, But one, let me ask you this, though. Why why do we think that Everton, for instance, have not been talking about Arteta going there? Why do we think it's an Arsenal thing? I think Everton are going to talk to him. Uh, like, Remember, West Ham are going to have a job open. Uh, Everton are going to have a job open. Um I think that he's going to be in in demand. And like Everton are a dangerous club. They spend more money than Arsenal. They've got Usmanov there. Um, like um, people say, well, Everton's his level. Go, yeah, but if he goes to Everton, the next move might be PSG. It might be Barcelona. Why not move in, strike while they are in hot, and take a chance? Because look, the options outside him are boring. Like this is a guy that could take Arsenal to the next level. Well, Allegri that... and Pochettino aren't boring. Um, yeah, but I think they're unrealistic. Yeah. That's my view, anyway. Yeah, we're more likely to go uh, Nuno. <laughs> Nuno, please, please, please. Um, right, uh, we've hit the hour mark. Um, is there anything else that you want to say on, uh, on on the manager piece? No, I think it's just uh, it's going to be. We're excited today because we've got a new manager. It's a moment, another moment in Arsenal history. I think it's going to be a scary few weeks because our fixture list in December is a fucking nightmare. Um, so that's a, that's a worry, but I think we just have to get it right because we are we are sinking at the moment. 
And you know the the, the greatest thing um, about today for me is it took 18 months to move on a bad manager. The last time it took 14 years, not a bad manager, but you know, the last time it took, it, like, we took action, it took 14 years. We like, everyone's like, well, you know, we don't want to be a, uh, the, the carousel uh, manager uh, type operation, but like really that's where the game's going, right? That's where it's been for 10, 15 years. Chelsea chop and change, look how many trophies they've had. If we have to chop and change a manager every three years, because that's the, that's the new uh, that's the new best practice. Then then so be it. But it's our new values. It's our new values. But I, I, I think we're just catching up with the game on this front. But like, hopefully, the the next move is is a manager that the fans can get behind. And ultimately, worst case scenario with Arteta, at least you'll be watching great football week there's, in week out. There's one thing we haven't really talked about. Right. What about Freddie Lundberg? What about him? Winning some of our big tough games in December and being uh, winning nine or ten in a row, could there be a repeat of the? Uh, or do you think that the board will would learn from the uh, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer uh, debacle? Because let's be honest, Arsenal fans, if Freddie goes and puts on a run and wins the next ten games and beats everyone in sight, we, you and me included, will be screaming for him to be the new manager. Well, yeah, I mean, look, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna fight it. I don't think that he's a great long term option, but. Let's just not give him a deal after 10 games. Let's see what happens at the end of the season and then take it game by game. But I, I think we can do better. But look, Freddie, not, better Fred, not better looking, but Freddie, Freddie could surprise us. Like Frank Lampard took Derby from sixth to sixth and now he's doing a really good job at Chelsea. So <laughs> um, it's not beyond the realms of possibility. But um, like, regardless, I'm excited about Arsenal again. Um, let's just hope that um, Raul doesn't get his way and uh, uh, that we make a smart move with the next hire. There was one other thing that just was great about today, which is I just remembered that Freddie goal in the FA Cup final. I mean, it was a work of art. It was there. The Chelsea. Was it Chelsea? Yeah, yeah. the second Beautiful. goal. Oh, my God. Yeah. Beautiful. Mugged off John Terry, curled it in the top right-hand corner. Lee Nets. Dixon running on the pitch. One song. The double. My, my childhood at Arsenal. Because he's got red hair. We love you, Fred. Because you're everywhere. We yeah. love you, Fred. And he's a man that looked good losing his hair. Let's be honest. Yeah. He made, he, Hard. Yeah. I didn't even realise that he was thinning when he had red hair, but um, it's nice to have a legend in charge of the club. I hope he does well. Um, and if he brings Gilberto back, fantastic. Let's, uh, let's see what they've got to offer. Yeah. On that note, um, uh, pleasure uh, to speak to you. No. Uh, Emery out. Emery uh, out. Pretty in. It's all changed. If you love to be remembered as the person who gives the best birthday gifts, I'm here to tell you that 1-800-Flowers.com is your ultimate birthday gifting destination. 1-800-Flowers has thoughtful and artfully created options that are guaranteed to deliver the best birthday surprise. Shop thousands of unique gifts at 1-800-Flowers.com for exclusive offers and great values. To order today, visit 1-800-Flowers.com slash tune in. That's 1-800-Flowers.com slash tune in. Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.